0: Good morning, Church. I'm Matt, one of the pastors here at the Village Church. Glad to be with you. Um, if you're uh, joining us today uh, from Cross of Christ, we're so glad you're here, and we hope you feel welcome into um, our church family this morning as we gather together as His Church. Um, we have been going through a series called Rechurch over the last number of weeks, and really, the idea of Rechurch is this idea of doing church over again. The preposition re means regarding, and so it's a series regarding the church. We want to talk about what the church is and a little bit as well as what it's not, and then we want to talk about what it means to do the church again, to be the church again. We have been sort of out of our rhythms of sorts this last year, and uh, it's sort of a refresher for all of us to kind of get back into the rhythms of what it means to be the church together, and so this is where we've been. We started um, in week one by talking about the reality that we are the Spirit-filled church, which means we are a new people. I'm going to ask you to declare that with me this morning. Can you say that with me? We are a, a new people. We are a new people. We've been made new by the Spirit of God who indwells us. The second week, we looked at this reality that we are a son confessing people, a sun-confessing church, rather. That means that we are a devoted people. Can you say that with me? We are a we are devoted people. We are. We're devoted to Jesus and to Jesus alone. That week, Pastor David reminded us of that. The third, week, we looked at this idea that we are the scripture-keeping church and we reminded ourselves that we are a grounded people. Let's say that together. We are, a, we are a grounded people. We're grounded in the truth of scripture. That everything we believe about Jesus and his person and his work, we believe because we're grounded in the scripture that teaches us about those things. Last Sunday, Pastor Sean walked us through the reality that we are a sacrament-observing church, that we are, are we remembering people. Can we say that together? We are a remembering people we are. We confess that because we remember Jesus. We remember who he is and what he did for us. And when we participate and when we observe the sacraments of baptism and communion, we see pictures of his, his life and his death and his resurrection, and, and we celebrate those things. We remember Jesus in them. This morning, we're going to talk about the reality that we are a spirit-united church, that we are united by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. We are a united people. This is good news all the time, but I think it's particularly good news in these times when as people we seem to be so fractured or fragmented. There are so many things that divide us and there are all kinds of powerful people and they do have a certain form of power and influence. Politicians, pundits, people that are trying to divide us over things God has never divided us over, things that are too small to divide over for that matter. The irony about it is they're also trying to unite us around things that are too small to unite us. This is called tribalism, when we either try to sort of pigeonhole ourselves in one place because of one belief or one thing, or we try to be united on just one thing or one belief. Things like race or sex or socioeconomic status or political party. Again, these things are too small. Tribalism has problems. Thaddeus Williams, in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, says it this way, and in a few weeks we're going to be starting a a series together, a, a Village Academy course on this topic. He says, if we care about the greatest commandment and the pursuit of truth, we must actively resist the identity games of tribes' thinking. We must weigh ideas based on scriptural fidelity over social status and say amen to that. If we care about the greatest commandment, and we do, and the pursuit of the truth, and we do care about that, we will base our thinking on scriptural fidelity over social status. We will not let these things divide us that God never said would, or could, or should. Jesus is calling us out of tribalism. He's calling us out of these things and into something that's so much better. And and we, we get a glimpse of it in this high priestly prayer in John 17. You know, you know a lot about a person by the things they pray for. Maybe if you pray with someone often and they're praying about the same things all the time, you get a sense of what's really important to them, right? When you pray with something with someone, it's just kind of what's inside comes out and, and they pray the things that are really on their heart and we get a glimpse into the heart of God as we hear Jesus praying his high priestly prayer. Jesus is going to pray that we are a spirit united group of people. And as he does, we're going to get a glimpse of just how big that is. In verse 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now, the these only would have been kind of a big enough prayer. I think we typically have the impression of the disciples that they were all the same, Yes, they they worshiped the same God. They were the same religiously. They were the same ethnically. But they were very different men. Peter and Andrew, they were religious, blue-collar, sort of small business owners. I think we can ascertain this from, from Scripture and from church history. Their friends, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a a wealthy name in that time. They were most likely, you know, buddies with with Peter and Andrew, but maybe more white-collarish, maybe more upper-middle class. Their parents probably very to-do. Those friends different from each other. Philip, a Jew who we only know based on his Greek name. We don't know what that tells us, but Nathaniel the guy who said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? One of the disciples that was still wrestling with some kind of prejudice toward the people that lived in Nazareth, they were looked down on. Matthew or Levi, the, the tax collector, the, in our, I guess, day, the corrupt IRS agent, right? That was defrauding God's people for his own gain. Someone they would have all hated. He was, a, he was the worst among them in his former life. Thomas, a religious man, but kind of a doubter. James the Lesser, we don't know much about him. He's kind of like Switzerland. Huh? He's here or there, right? We don't, we don't really know what's going on with James the Lesser, not much about him. Simon the Zealot, though, it describes him. A religious zealot, a political religious zealot. Really, think Antifa or think like the, some, some right-wing group. Think one of those groups, a violent religious political zealot. Judas, the son of Jude, a guy who constantly, as we see, has, a, has a, a vision for the world, maybe more of a globalist. And of course, you have to throw in a traitor among them, right? It just round things out. Look, these guys were different from one another, but Jesus united them together. But then Jesus prays those who will believe through their words. And here we get the distinction between the Jewish people who they were, and the Gentile world, everyone else. That the entire world one day would know of the things of Jesus through their words, and then through their words, and then through their words, and then so on and so on. Jesus is talking about a kind of unity among a, a kind of diversity that no one had ever known or has been known apart from Jesus. The question is how? How? How does Jesus unite all kinds of different people? I think we get a glimpse in verses 21 to 23. Look at 21. It says, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at verse 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus unites all kinds of different people through faith in himself and through the presence of his indwelling Holy Spirit, that he gives us the spirit to indwell us, to bear witness between our hearts and one another's that we are united together with Christ. Theologians call this doctrine union with Christ. And the doctrine of union with Christ is so large because it literally encompasses so many different kinds of relationship that we have to Christ and to his people. In short, it says that everything that is Christ's is ours because we're now united together with him. And from eternity past, as we've been united together with him in his life and his death and his resurrection... So much so that we think we sing songs that, that tell us about the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. That, that Jesus' life is actually ours because we're united together with him. That is the Father sees our life, he sees, he sees Jesus. We get his record when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him. This is just one of the things that it means to be united together with Christ. Everything that's his is ours. But it also means that we're united together with one another because we're all in Christ, part of his body, his family, his church. Our faith in Jesus is the indwelling and his indwelling presence of his Spirit, again, bearing witness to our hearts that we are his. And although as Christians we see Jesus uniting all of humanity, we are united by something that's beyond humanity. And we're united by the Spirit of God, and that's... And people from other places in, in that region of the world that have different color skin than I do, and they speak a different first language than I do. To be honest, they eat better food than I do most of the time. I mean, that food is so good. <laughs> uh, I tried to cook some coming home. I think I did a pretty good job. Um, they're different than us in so many ways, but that's why we can be united the second the plane wheels hit the ground. Like we come off the plane and we meet them, and we instantly know why we're together. We instantly know, like we're Christians, we're brothers and sisters, and we're on a mission. What were we doing? We're sharing Christ with college students. We're helping with a church plan. We're going to a village where there's no known Christian. We're going to be a witness for Jesus, but we're on the same page immediately. No background, no history, no personality inventory, <laughs> right? None of that, I know nothing. I know you're a Christian. You profess faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We're united together by his spirit and we're on a mission together. So Jesus prayed for us to be a united group of people. The question is why? Because Jesus knew that in 2021, it'd be a very politically correct and great thing to to have on his, his resume. No, these people just pirated from Jesus. There's two main reasons I think Jesus reveals to us in his prayer. The first is that unity images God well. That's why. Unity images God well. Look back at verse 21 where it says, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. God wants to show something of himself to the world. That's why Jesus says, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them. Jesus is saying, I've revealed who you are to them. And we believe that as Christians. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. Jesus revealed who the Father was to us. And now as we go out, we're, we're supposed to reveal something of who God is to the rest of the world now that we are in Christ. And part of the way that we do that is, is by the unity that we have among one another. Even though we are united together as Christians, we don't disappear. Our personalities don't disappear. Our backgrounds don't disappear. Like we are different people, but we're united together in Christ. God is one in nature, in essence, in substance, in purpose. But he has unique personality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unique personhood. Unity images something of God to the world. Village Church, this is why we say we want to, we want to grow and multiply disciples who are delighting in Jesus, declaring the good news about Jesus, and we use another word, displaying the life of Jesus. And we use the display word not just because it starts with D, okay? It's because this is the reality. We want to show something to the world of who God is, and unity really helps. And disunity does not, because God is unified in himself. There's a second reason, and it's this, that unity evangelizes well. Unity doesn't just image God well, and it does. It evangelizes well. Did you catch that in the end of 21 where it says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me? Or the end of 23 where it says, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus wants all kinds of people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds and places in the world To know the love of God that can only be found through him. This is the reason. And and, and unity helps evangelize well. Which is why as a church we say we want to be delighting in Jesus, declaring the good news about Jesus, and you need to declare words to evangelize. And we also say displaying the life of Jesus, because we want to show something of what we're saying We want to declare the truth about the gospel and we want to image something of the truth of who God is. We want to do both of those things. And we say delighting because it's a joy to do it. It's a joy to know God and it's a joy to be involved by his grace, imaging him well to the people around us. He deserves it. The early church was highly unified. And maybe this was the reason why they were so highly effective in evangelism. I don't know if you've ever thought, I'm sure you have if you're a Christian, you look back to the early church and you go, oh man, what it would have been like to live then, you know, when it was all first happening. It just seemed like, you know, they could sneeze and people would come to Jesus and it was just, boom, it was happening. Thousands of people at a time. Acts chapter 2 shows us one of those little vignettes, right, where they hold all things in common. And at the end of it it says, and the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. We see this picture of extreme unity, and then we see this almost extreme, kind of what would be to us extreme, like, you mean new Christians every day being added to the church? Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what Luke was saying. A few chapters later in chapter 4, there's this other vignette about the kind of unity, sharing all things in common again. And just after that in chapter 5, it sort of bleeds over this idea. And the more than ever believers were added to the Lord, more than ever, multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes is a number where you, you use that word when you, when you actually can't count. The early church was so unified. And that's why their evangelism went so well. I was thumbing around one of my systematic theologies this, this week and it says, Millard Erickson says, the company of believers tend to grow when their witness is unified, whereas there may well be a negative or canceling effect when they compete with or even criticize one another. Maybe you found that when you're trying to share Christ with someone and there's all kinds of questions they have and you're trying to do your best to answer the questions, but then one of them's like, well, if you guys, if this is really true, then why are there so many different kinds of Christians? Like, why are there so many denominations? Like, why are you guys so divided? Like, why, why aren't you guys, like, more unified on what you believe? Like, if this is true, then why don't, why don't you all believe it? And then maybe you have an opportunity to explain, like, no, actually, there are things that all Christians believe, if they're Christians, right? There's an orthodox Christian belief set of system of belief, right? Of course. Maybe you're thinking this morning, Matt, I'm, I'm, I'm good with all of this. I believe all this. I believe that we're united together with Christ. I believe that the, the things that the world is trying to divide us over are too small. I believe that the, the things the world is trying to use, unite us over are too small. I believe that only Jesus can unite all these kinds of people, you know, in a way that's, that's substantial. I believe that. I'm, I'm, I'm in. But how is that going to happen? How, how are we going to get to that kind of unity? I was reading D.A. Carson's commentary on, on the book of John this week, and, and he sums it up well. He says this, it's not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. I just want to pause and emphasize that. That's not what unity means. It it doesn't mean hunting for the lowest theological common denominator. We're we're not about that. But by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, the the, the gospel of the apostles, the one that they preach, can someone say amen to that? Amen to that. That's what we believe. By love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, love your neighbors yourself by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged and lastly by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. Carson points out four things: gospel, love, mission, and dependence. How do we get to this form of unity? One, we stay centered on the gospel, like the biblical apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a prosperity gospel or a social gospel or anything else attached to the gospel. There's no such thing as that. There's just the gospel. We stay focused on the gospel. But as we do, we love our neighbor as ourself. As we stay focused on the gospel, we love our neighbor as ourself, every neighbor with every color skin that speaks every color language that's from every socioeconomic status, every one of our neighbors as ourself. And we stay focused on the mission that Jesus was on himself. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus refers to this in his prayer that as he's been sent, that, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. We stay focused on the mission of Jesus and we're completely dependent on him to carry it out. We realize our world is too fragmented and we are too frail and there are too many distractions and we need dependence on Jesus to stay focused on him while we love our neighbor as ourselves, while we stay focused on his mission, we complete dependence on him to accomplish this, to, to, to bring other people to him and to bring us closer to himself. Many people, one mission, right? Many different kinds of people. There's just one mission. That's why what we're all united around is is the mission of Jesus, to make disciples. You know the mission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And I know that's easy listening for us, but that would have been radical for a Jewish audience. All the nations All those people that are radically different from us, all of those people that have so much different social and former religious practices, and and they they do weird and strange things. All of those people, yeah. We know the mission, right? All authority has been given to me. We know it. We know the mission. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you because now you're united together with Christ. Christ and you shall be my witnesses. You shall display something of me to the world as you proclaim the gospel to the world in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Village church, this is why our core focus or our mission statement is this, that the village church exists to glorify God. We think this glorifies God. Building and multiplying disciples, who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus because we believe every village needs Jesus. Every person in every village needs Jesus. And we didn't come up with this mission statement because we just thought well, that would be a good mission for us. No, no, we think it's connected to his mission of making disciples, growing and multiplying disciples. We're doing our best to stay focused on his mission and being united together around that despite whatever smaller differences we may have. As we get to the end here, you you may be thinking something like, okay, again, I'm in. Um, But in my church experience, I haven't seen that kind of unity all the time. You know, I've seen a lot of disunity in the life of the church, and honestly, I don't really know what unity looks like. What does that actually look like? And like, these are big concepts gospel, love, right? Mission, dependence. But what what does that look like? I was telling you at the beginning of this series that every one of these marks of the church has at least one metaphor in the New Testament. And the good news for us this morning is I think I found at least five for this one. Five quick pictures of what this looks like. This is going to be fast, but here we go. One, it looks like a healthy body. It looks like a healthy body. For just as the body is one as many members, and all its members of the body, though many are one body, so it also is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. It, it looks like a healthy body. In the earliest part of the quarantine, I felt like, honestly, I felt like the healthiest I'd ever been. Like, as a person, I felt like I was eating well. I had plenty of time to exercise more than I ever had. Like, I, I could, my body was functioning on all cylinders, and I could feel it. I knew it. I know my body. You know yours. That's what he's talking about. It feels like a healthy body. It looks like a healthy body. It also looks like a great marriage. Ephesians 5, therefore a man and his father shall... Uh, shall leave his father and mother; shall hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, "This is a mystery; it's profound." But I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. Like when you see the most unified marriage that you know, with people that are different from one another but are united together as one flesh, and you see the unity between them—the best marriage that you've ever observed—that's kind of what it looks like. It looks like a loving family. Ephesians two nineteen so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. It looks like an extended family gathering. It looks like that holiday gathering where you sit around the table with your relatives and you don't all agree on everything. This year was probably more tenuous than most, right? (laughs) Uh, It was, it was. But at the end of the day, everyone around that table is what? their family. That's what it's like. It's like something like, it looks something like that. It looks like a united nation. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Looking around, I see some of you probably aren't old enough to remember what it felt like after 9-11. Some of you are you could feel how unified our country was. You could live on one coast and feel how unified you were with someone on the other coast or anyone. I mean, you could, you could feel, you feel something very different today. But I'm telling you, in that day, you could feel it. It, it. More than I've ever known in my lifetime, that's for sure. I know what it feels like to be a united nation. That's something of what it looks like. It looks something like that. But you know, the last picture that we have is, is actually the picture we started with in Reagan's um, call to worship this morning out of Revelation It looks like the end. It looks like heaven. Revelation 7 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a lot of talk in business today about reverse engineering, right? We sort of look at the end and you sort of engineer things and you back into them. You engineer your, 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 your week, your month, your year, you know, according to what you want the end to be. And to be clear, we don't engineer anything. <laughs> okay, God does that. He's already engineered it. Like in the end, he, he already is, is uniting all kinds of people to himself. We see the picture of it. And I think the idea is that we live our lives now in light of that end. We live our lives now to that end. We, we live our lives with that kind of unity, pursuing that kind of unity between now and then. We, we live our lives toward what, what God's already engineered in the end. That picture of the end is the way we live our lives in the present. A few pictures I hope are helpful just from the New Testament there. I want to end with just um, our good news for this morning. And if you're new with us at the Village Church, we, we always offer this good news statement every Sunday, which is essentially trying to, to take a, a piece of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of the passage of scripture that we're in, and, and some of the circumstances are in our lives, and just build bridges between those things. I think the good news for this morning is something like this, that Jesus lived, died, and rose to unite us all to himself and to one another. To Do that by faith. And I hope that's really good news for you this morning, that you can be united together with Jesus Christ by faith in him and united together with one another despite the things the world should say might divide you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you have united us together with yourself. I can imagine there's not a person here this morning that's a Christian that is not just thankful after hearing your prayer out of John 17, that they are united together with you and that everything that is yours is theirs. Just amazing. We thank you. It's so good. You've been so kind. We will also just confess that we're glad that we could be united together with one another. And even this morning, just being reminded as we see, we see friends and meet new friends that... that um, that there's a, a, a larger sea in front of the church, and we can see it this morning in some ways, and we thank you for that, that unite us together with one another. Jesus, we also want to pause for a moment here and make confession. We want to confess that we have allowed small things to divide us, things that you never said should. Lord, would you forgive us? In great ways or maybe small ones that have added up. We've separated ourselves from people that are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, would you help us to focus on the truth of your gospel? On what it would be to love our neighbor as ourself. To make disciples and declare our complete dependence on you. And in this moment, we do. And we do it in your name, and we do it for your sake, Jesus. Amen.